0: Hello, I'm Dr. Anne Holdaway and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Dietetic Discussion podcast. Now in its third series, I have the privilege of hosting the Dietetic Discussion where I'm joined by some of the UK's leading lights in the world of nutrition to explore a diverse range of topics relevant to the practice and evolution of dietetics. Our aim is quite simply to provide thought-provoking, factual and insightful information that can enhance your everyday practice. In today's podcast, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by arguably the UK's most prominent dietitian, Dr. Megan Rossi, where together we'll be exploring the benefits of diet diversity and the influence of eating patterns, foods and food ingredients on gut health. Before we begin this week's discussion, I'd like to express my considerable appreciation to the team at Nutrinovo for supporting what is now the third series of the Dietetic Discussion. Without their support, this podcast simply wouldn't be possible. Having worked in the clinical nutrition industry myself, I'm very aware that innovations often emerge from clinicians working in partnership with industry. And so aside of spreading evidence-based dietetic knowledge, I hope that a discussion held on this very podcast series might be the springboard for generating new product innovations along the vein of NutriNovo's liquid fiber supplement, High Fibre. Returning to today's hot topic, I'd like to introduce my eminent guest. Dr. Megan Rossi is founder of The Gut Health Doctor and is considered one of the most influential gut health specialists on an international basis. A registered dietitian and nutritionist for the last decade, Megan has an award-winning PhD in gut health. Recognized for its significant contribution to science, Megan received the Dean's Award for her outstanding research for her PhD. Now as a leading research fellow at King's College London, Megan is currently investigating nutrition-based therapies in gut health, for which she has secured over $2.5 in research funding. Her output is phenomenal, reflected in her having published over 30 scientific papers to date. Seeing fad and potentially dangerous misinformation being disseminated on gut health and frustrated that her findings weren't reaching the public, Megan took to social media to share credible evidence-based advice and has since built an impressive and engaged community of over 390,000 people. To achieve greater influence, Megan launched her debut book, Eat Yourself Healthy, also published under the title Love Your Gut, in September 2019. And her new books, Eat More, Live Well and How to Eat More Plants, are Sunday Times bestsellers. Megan created her own multi-award-winning gut health food brand, Bio and Me, to bridge the gap between science and the food industry, and also founded the Gut Health Clinic in London, where she currently leads a team of gut specialist dietitians to provide support and advice for individuals. She's her own weekly column with the UK's biggest-selling newspaper, The Daily Mail, and regularly appears on the UK's popular daytime show, This Morning. In previous podcasts, we often round up by asking our guests who has inspired them. And Dr. Megan Rossi has consistently featured in the responses. And hence, I consider it a huge privilege to have Megan here with me today. So thanks very much for joining me, Megan, and for sharing your knowledge and expertise with our listeners.
1: Wow, that's lovely to hear. Thanks so much. That's really kind of you.
0: Whilst I have no doubt many of our listeners will already be aware of who you are, um, I'd be interested to hear from you direct about your journey to this point in your career and what brought you on this path and sparked your interest in gut health.
1: Yeah, so I don't think that many people know, but I'm actually a bit of a country bumpkin. So I grew up in (laughs) Australia in a kind of rural town on a farm and, you know, good gut health was certainly inherent to our upbringing, although I obviously had no concept. 34 years ago, what you know, gut health was really about, but you know, eating fresh fruit and veg, playing in the dirt, all that sort of stuff. But actually, my first conscious encounter with the gut um was when I was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics. And sadly, I lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And um Sorry. she had, yeah, she had quite a big part of my upbringing. I was, you know, raised by a single mom, working mom. So she meant quite a lot to me and I just I really actually hated the gut to be quite frank with you mm. like putting her through the chemo the surgery and then taking her life and I reflected on you know what we'd learnt during my degree about bowel cancer and you know there wasn't a whole lot of mechanistic kind of insight there at the time and I was kind of like god there, there feels like something missing here but anyway I suppressed those emotions and started working as a clinical dietitian. Um, so I worked in a, in a hospital setting with all different types of conditions, from chronic kidney disease to mental health to other cancers. Um, but also, I was very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic Synchronized Swimming Team. And I just found it so striking that despite people coming from very different backgrounds, you know, elite athletes and people with all these chronic conditions and diseases, they're all coming to me complaining of the gut. And I was like, what is that organ Mm -hmm. and it was like haunting me and um that was 2010s there hadn't been a whole lot of gut health research really come out at that point little niggles kind of in the literature and I thought you know what I owe it to my grandma and to my uh patients and clients to find out more about this organ that feels like there's something missing there so that's when I embarked on a PhD um and It was that PhD, which essentially I looked at the combination of a pre and probiotic, so a symbiotic, whether that could improve the health of not just gut symptoms, but systemically things like, you know, kidney function, mental health, et cetera, and it really did change everything for me. It became so clear that actually I didn't hate the gut at all. I just had completely misunderstood it and it had so much power and potential. And if I could help people understand that, then I could kind of remove a lot of the suffering that, you know, so many people go through. So it was really the end of that PhD. I'm like, you know what, I definitely want to dedicate the rest of my career um, to to gut health. And, you know, it's a landmark scientific discovery that I think dietitians can really lead on because, you know, one of the key principles of the gut is is how we we feed our gut microbiome, those mm-hmm. trillions of organisms. So at the end of that, I looked around, you know, who was doing the most innovative gut health, health research, and it was King's. Um, so I said, look, mum, I'll, I'll go for just a year. I'll kind of, you mm-hmm. know, establish more of my research career, and then I'll come back. And um, seven years later, I'm still in the UK, still work as a research fellow at King's because uh, I I really do, Love the amazing opportunities we get to explore all different types of, of research, um, nutrition-based research, and how it impacts the gut from people with things like inflammatory bowel disease, but also to the everyday healthy person trying to just maximize um, their mental health and well-being through targeting uh, the gut.
0: Yeah, and I think what you touched on there, Megan, was that whole, uh, you know, the King's uh, is such a centre of excellence. And there's so much great work coming out of the team there uh, and uh, from you included in that. And it's interesting. I always remember the first time I saw you present was at the British Society of Gastroenterology a number of years ago. And uh, you stood up and you did this super slick presentation and wowed the audience. And I think a number of years on, it's, it's great to see you in the profession and really making a difference with you know some very sound messages which I know we're going to come on to explore really so I know one of the uh, may I say it's a mantra of yours about diet diversity certainly in the books that you publish um all the communication you have online you do talk about diet diversity so I want to go on to explore uh, what ingredients would you consider typically influence gut health so the good the bad the bad and the ugly really
1: yeah, absolutely. So, in terms of, I guess, where this concept diversity, you know, comes to the forefront scientifically, a lot of it has just been established based on our gut microbiome. So, you know, if we you think back to when we all did uni, we we knew that things like the macronutrients, like having fiber, having fruit and veg, were always important. But I feel like certainly when I went through, there was there was no real mention of this importance necessarily of diversity. And we just thought, you know, if you're having enough fiber, that's great. That's all your your gut needs. But now I guess without understanding of you know those trillions of microorganisms, yes, majority of bacteria, but actually we've got the fungal component, the the um even some parasites and viruses as well, which synergistically work together. What we're understanding is that There's not just one type of fiber, there's close to 100 and, you know, tens of thousands of these phytochemicals, which are found in plants, which all do different things. And that has, I guess, yeah, opened our understanding of that importance of plant-based diversity where, you know, if we just had things like quinoa and oats and we didn't have you know, broccoli and pumpkin seeds, what we're finding is that we're only feeding the minority of our gut bacteria because each type have a different like flavour profile where they thrive on. So to achieve what we see as optimal gut health at the moment, which essentially is the greatest microbial diversity, the number of different types of organisms we have in us, we need to feed them that really diverse ranges of plants um, because that's essentially their kind of favourite category is is plants. Mm. Um, And when we talk about plants, I kind of break it down to what I call the super six. Um, so you've got your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veg, your legumes, so your beans and your pulses, and then your herbs and your spices. And we see that each different category, and obviously within each subcategory even, but they do provide different types of dietary fibres and those phytochemicals which are feeding the different microbes. So I do see it's quite important when we are thinking about our diets and or our patients' and clients' diets is actually to start thinking, well, are they having something from the super six most days? Or actually are they just really focusing on all the fruit and the veggie fibers? Because um, there's really, you know, great research out there that highlights that even risk of some chronic conditions, um, you know, is dictated by the the sourcing of the fibre, where not all fibers kind of the same in terms mm. of the protection. So yeah, I think that's probably the key principle that's that's come out thanks to I guess our growing understanding of the the work of the microbiome
0: yeah and i think we've definitely see that sort of all trickle down into the dietetic profession that we've had other podcasts looking at fiber and we don't just now talk about insoluble and soluble fiber and those two very simple categories it's much more complex than that and it's lovely to link it into gut health and how you can create that story for the individuals we care for as well i think is really positive because rather than talking about restrictive diets we're actually talking about variety which makes what we eat more interesting so yeah so Um, Coming on from that, there's been a lot of noise really about meal timing and frequency. We hear all about this intermittent fasting and, uh, you know, for various reasons, it might be around weight management. But um, have you any comments to make really for our audience about how meal timing and frequency of eating might influence gut health?
1: Yeah, it is a really interesting one because you do see a lot of bold claims Um, saying that these fasting approaches can improve things beyond weight management to things like longevity. But actually, when we delve into the literature at the moment, and of course, this is constantly changing. But at the moment, what we see is most of these big claims around, you know, improved cell turnover, the longevity, you know, improved mental clarity, and and those sorts of things mechanistically are just from animal studies and, and test tube studies. And we know that, you know, only a small percentage of of these animal studies ever actually really translate into human clinical trials. So I just think you know, as dietitians, we need to be really conscious that we wait to see that there's human clinical trials to kind of back up principles before we absolutely go go home. Now, in saying that, I am completely open to different types of eating suits different types of people, and you know, I still work as a as a clinician, so I've got a team at Gut Health Clinic and. So I I get to see that, you know what, some people actually really enjoy the fasting approach. Um, I certainly never really recommend long fasts um because of the the restrictive kind of dangers of that, but also they're not getting their fibers or fibrin and and to claim, you know, there is animal studies, not human studies at the moment, but it shows that if you go on these long fasts, in the animal studies, the microbiome gets hangry, essentially, and they start to eat away at the mucus lining of the intestine, and therefore make you more prone to things like inflammatory offset um, from the bacteria, because it's it's thinner, it's kind of like in, in some cases of inflammatory bowel disease. So there are some potential risks mechanistically, of course, we want to see that in humans of these longer fasts. But Certainly shorter fast, I see for people where the focus is weight management, reducing down their eating window, you know, an hour or two each side has been really helpful. And I'm like, yeah, you know what, there's... um there's not huge amounts of evidence for that um, outside of, you know, maybe a bit of weight management just because, you, you know, calorie intake is, is mm. reduced. But if it feels good for you and you're still getting enough of the, the plant diversity and fiber in it, you you go for it. Um, But it's just thinking on like that a public health message, the people that are very like everyone should fast. I think mm. we need to be cautious of that in terms of, I guess, you know, gut health. We do know that. It's probably ideal to have at least a twelve-hour fast overnight without disturbing the gut, because we know that particularly when we sleep, our um, intestinal lining kind of cells turnover and grow. So if we're constantly disrupting that um, by eating, that that could potentially delay some of the the cell turnover. So you know the twelve hours. But I think most people with normal eating habits are achieving that. I would say if a patient or client isn't doing that, then it's probably worth saying, look, try and make it twelve hours. Um, And then the other probably exception to what I've said is in people with constipation, um, there has been some studies out there to show that actually having at least a um, two-hour window uh, in between your meals or in between eating can be helpful for stimulating the migrating motor complex. So that's that movement in your gut that helps kind of push the food along and can mm-hmm. help stimulate things even like the mass movement as well, um, which kind of is that final push. So if people who are really struggling with constipation, I say maybe, you know, for your cohort, you um, For two weeks you know reduce down kind of the the snacking approach um and therefore and see if that helps at all but literally everyone else i see and the science supports this, that snacking can actually be more beneficial than not snacking on right but you know there's studies that show i think it was like 30 grams of walnuts before your evening meal The, the participants who had that significantly reduced down the total calorie intake but also more importantly things like the added sugars they had in that meal, the amount of um, uh, saturated fats as well, as, as well as salt. so actually mm. having a bit of second can prevent things like overeating, uh, which I think is, is you know, what a lot of people are focused on.
0: Mm. And certainly in my field, I, I support a lot of patients, you know, who are at risk of malnutrition. And, you know, when they get these messages about these long extended periods of, um, abstaining from eating it presents a real challenge and they're getting these mixed messages isn't it so I think what we're hearing is not one size fits all That's and perfect. there is merit uh, in in some snacks being included for some people
1: yeah and I mean there's, there's even studies that showed they've looked at snacks versus non-snackers and showed that mm. snackers have high intakes of dietary fiber and a couple of other micronutrients that actually the prevalence of deficiencies is, is relatively high and because we see that, you know, sacking is a great opportunity for things like the whole foods, like a handful of nuts and and some fruits and things like that, which are good source of fiber that a lot of people don't necessarily have in a main meal. Mm. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. What you said, uh, no one size fits all.
0: Yeah. And so coming on from that, then, not all snacks are unhealthy.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Yeah, I'm a big fan of personally snacking. I get hungry, hangry Mm -hmm. quite often. Um, (laughs) And, yeah, I see that, of course, there's going to be, you know, the choice there, um, in terms of, of how ultra processed people go. But yeah, absolutely. A lot of snacks are a great sources of dietary fiber. Um, I think food industry has even started to appreciate this importance of plant based diversity and are starting to add in, um, different, different types of these super six things like the legumes. Mm-hmm. I think is a great one where I think historically people are a bit like, to lentils and chickpeas and butter beans and black beans, they kind of put their nose up like, oh, gross! It comes this smelly, it comes in tin. But actually, I think the benefit of food industries incorporation and in slow small amounts, there's a greater acceptance of these ingredients, mm-hmm. um, and therefore we're starting to see that the intake of likes of chickpeas and things like the canned versions, you know, which is so economical, so accessible you know, is actually starting to to go up on
0: people's agenda. And just in relation to that, you've just touched on, you know, the sort of super six you talk about, whole grains, legumes, pulses, nuts and seeds. Um, What we're seeing uh, from the manufacturers is the use of things like polydextrose, pea fibre, soya fibre, with the aim of helping individuals achieve both the total fibre requirements and the diversity. So what are your views regarding the manufacturers using these novel ingredients? this
1: concept on fibre is really important one to cover because, yes, we know that in the UK most of us are getting, you know, less than 20 grams, we need at least 30 grams and actually some of the, the mental health benefits um, attached to, to diet as actually given 50 grams of fibre from whole sources a day. So I think as a population, clearly we do need more dietary fibre um, and I often quote this study, which I think is really important that all dietitians should kind of have to, on the top of their their um, brain. It was a systematic review from Lancet, published 2019, if I am correct. Um, and what they showed for every eight grams increase in fiber a day, you could increase decrease the risk of heart disease on a population level by 19%, type two diabetes by 15%, and colon cancer by 8%. It's just the eight grams of fiber which hopefully most dietitians appreciate, is something like a cup of beans mm. or a cup of chickpeas or some hummus and some veggie sticks um, or, you know, two pieces of fruit and a small handful of nuts. So things are actually quite doable, um, but it's about kind of getting that in on the, on the daily basis. So coming back, and that was a bit of a ramble, coming back to this concept, yes, as a population we need more fibre, so I love that the food industry is adding more fibre to the products. I think it's important that we appreciate that it's not going to be a case of a fiber supplement that's going to have the same benefit as getting it from,
0: you know, the whole food version. Mm, and I think I see that in clinical practice where somebody's given a fiber supplement and not the other advice that might support it through their diet changes. And what we've been trying to do and talking about in the profession is, is... You know, that dual approach, really, you might be looking at using fiber supplements in the longer term or short term, depending on the individual in front of you and what they feel they can change in their diet, but supported by dietary advice to achieve lasting change. And certainly that dual approach is applicable to lots of areas of dietetics where we promote the use of food, sometimes referred to as food first or food based approaches, whilst using medical nutritional specialist products that are manufactured, uh, that can help individuals to achieve, in this case, better gut health while they work on dietary change. So uh, many of us working in the field of nutrition and dietetics, Megan, observing this trend towards the adoption of plant-based diets. I think that's particularly in some of the younger generations coming through. And I'm aware from your own media communication and publications, there's a focus on encouraging the consumption at least. 30 different plant-based foods per week so can you enlighten us on the science to support that you've touched on it a little bit more but I'd like to explore it further with you about how achievable is it and uh, how do we break down the advice to support individuals
1: Yeah, and I think um, that's a a great one to cover. And and when we talk about plant-based diets, I always like to make the disclosure that I'm not talking about plants only. Mm. And I think in the general public, when you hear someone say plant-based, they automatically assume vegan, like 100% plants. Whereas actually, if you look at the scientific evidence, you don't need to go 100% plant-based to have the best gut health. And in fact, there's argument that actually, if you go 100% plant-based, you need to be a little bit more savvy in certain areas of your nutrition to make sure you have optimal health. Because we know that things like um omega-3s which obviously the best source comes from oily fish actually that has shown to have a correlation with optimal gut health um as well as things like fermented dairy so i certainly don't advocate widely that people go plants only i would say more of majority being the plant-based so that that magic number of 30 people um People often go, oh, where, you know, where did that come off from? Is it a cutoff? So, um, some great work um, came uh, from the US to first look at this. And what they showed is that people who ate at least thirty different types of plants a week had better gut health in terms of microbial diversity than those who stuck with the same ten on repeat. And what they showed is that if you're a vegan omnivore, also ate, ate animal products, it didn't matter. That key concept or the key predictor of of, um, gut health in terms of microbial diversity came down to that plant diversity. So that's where I guess it initially came from. And then I guess I've just translated that a little bit more with the clinical experience side of things and broken that down to having this plant point system, which I think people because people, you know, if you think about a lot of patients, they like to count things. And I think that's why this calorie counting thing, which I'm not a fan of, has stuck because people like, they mm. kind of like to feel like they can I know, have some control over numbers. So it's about getting people to count the number of different plants they're having. Um, but I think the important principle of have added in there is around that the super six. So mm. you can't get your 30 points from just your veg um and think you're going to have the same optimal gut health as someone who gets their 30 spread across the super six as a, as a source um and i know that it sounds like it can be really intimidating and that's where i think as clinicians we need to be really um careful with the counseling style because yeah if i told a lot of my family members you need to eat 30 plants they're like oh no way like that's just you know a barrier straight up there but actually it's explaining things like instead of just having your pumpkin seeds get your three seed mix and you get an extra two three points instead of just getting maybe your chickpeas get your four bean mix in um in water and, and you get an extra three points so each different diversity uh, each different type of plant essentially gives you an extra point because it contains a wealth of plant chemicals and I like to give the example because I think we people always need tangible examples of of why they should be doing this whereas like the humble apple for example contains over 300 different types of phytochemicals and all of them do different things like in SITO uh, I think people are hearing more about it's actually got some really good evidence for PCOS and that's found in humble apple melatonin is found in plenty of plants like all of these things dopamine is also in apple so these kind of chemicals that we've heard of having health benefits actually is found in like you know the boring old apple mm. and if you extrapolate you know that's 300 number to all the other different types of plants you start to appreciate the importance of getting in the different varieties versus sticking to apples because we know that blueberries have got their own profile of these phytochemicals which can do more different things um so yeah usually when i'm counseling uh our clients or patients it would be a case of let's have a look at how many you're having and let's try just pick one extra plant that week um as well as at the grocery store. Don't just get the, you know, the the rice pack, get the, the pack of grains which have got like the eight different types of grains in it. And actually when you start going to the grocery store and thinking like that, you notice that actually often it's no extra effort in terms of cooking time but also no extra cost. Um, so there's some major supermarkets out there um, which actually have this really great product and it's like less than, I think it's like a pound for like, you know, 300 grams of of raw grains, and it already contains nine different types of whole grains in it It takes 10 minutes to cook. It's like amazing that you know, that product exists. And it's really accessible for everyone. And you know, you're getting in so much of that variety uh, without having to really change your behavior too drastically.
0: Mm. I mean, your behavior change is really important uh, in terms of trying to get our patients to make those changes. But I think what you've emphasized there is is breaking it down into some really practical tips that are quick to apply in our busy lives uh, and particularly when people might have limited cooking skills as well. It's about giving those really practical messages that I think you do so well and there's some great examples there. You touched on some foods there about some of the key components uh, that we know are present in, in some of those fruits that you cited. And that brings me on nicely really to the topic of superfoods. And we've just been through Christmas and we've got all the fad diets coming out, and there's lots of discussion and noise about superfoods now. Um, so I'd like to know your views on superfoods and and why, really, as dietitians, we sort of discourage it in the attempt to uh, ensure that our patients are going to choose diverse diets rather than just thinking that one food is the be all and and end all. And and it certainly made me, last week, uh, there was a paper published around, uh, you know, the use of two kiwi fruits to prevent constipation. I'm thinking, well, that's great. We know there are properties in kiwi fruits that can help with um, gut health and transit and stool type. But to me, it just focuses on one specific food. And yet, we know how this diversity is so important. So I'd like to hear your views about superfoods, Megan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as dietitians, we all know that word essentially goes against all the fundamental principles that are now science-based about this diversity concept, right? Because people then go, okay, berries is all I should be having in terms of fruit. I don't need any other fruit. Um, Yet when we see people who are narrowing down the diversity, even if no matter how Super, they are, no matter how high the antioxidant load is, you know, per 100 grams. If you're just sticking to that one type, you're only feeding that minority type of microorganisms in your gut that like that type of superfood. And therefore, you're narrowing down essentially the skill sets within your body that do so much for us in terms of things like regulating appetite, regulating our hormones, our microbiome does as well. Like, there's so many factors so yeah it definitely goes against this whole principle um i mean i think as dietitians we need to very much be we need to be a bit sexy and appealing so we need to make sure that the concepts you know are, um, are exciting for people. And I think that's where this whole gut health movement comes and, and where dietitians can really take the lead because we don't want to be seen as the ones that are like, no, 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 superfoods are boring, man. Like we, we, want, we want to encourage people to be excited about food, right? Because it's yeah. our profession and, and we love food. A lot of us are foodies ourselves. Um, but it's about thinking of how we can integrate the science and make it a bit fun and sexy and attractive the way that superfood concept has been positioned. But we just want to make it you know, the diversity kind of the superfood concept the sexy Mm. concept that people go after, which I think because of this excitement around the microbiome and people hearing that in meat all the time, it is starting to be more accepted and people think it's a bit cooler to kind of think about, you know, that diversity, how many plant points they're eating and stuff like that. It's starting to cotton on a little bit more. Um, So, yeah, I think it's just the way that we package our messages, right? Because actually, you know, this fiber concept, eating more fiber, it's been around for ages. Mm. You know, we've been trying to get people to eat more fiber forever. Um, although I guess we didn't really understand the mechanisms, and therefore I guess that story wasn't as strong. So it's just about how we package our messages to make them more appealing and, and get them, yeah, more of a movement behind them.
0: I think what you're saying there is, you know, the messages haven't really landed, have they? So we've got to think about how you change your messaging uh, so that people do make the changes and adopt these ideas in practice. On that basis, are there any specific ingredients you might encourage individuals to look for in relation to gut health?
1: Yeah, look, there was a really great paper which came out uh, last year from the University of Bergen. And what they actually sh- looked at is how much extra life we could gain by ch- making a few tweaks to our diet. And they show you we could add it over a decade to our life. And I think we're starting to not just think about disease prevention, but a lot of us are thinking, particularly me as I'm getting older, mm-hmm. um, about this concept of longevity. We want to live longer and healthier and happier. So it, that paper really did appeal to a lot of people. And what they showed is that the, the kind of the um, number one strategy to get the most the biggest bang for your buck essentially was adding legumes to your diet so adding legumes to your diet could add an extra two and a half years to life and then I think under that it was adding whole grains and then I think um seeds might have added like 1.9 years also to your life so I think um not that we should be eating legumes at the exclusion of everything else but I think there is a real kind of exciting area around legumes because they are really accessible and probably historically we've eaten such so little that actually not that they're healthier or anything than, than vegetables but we get more bang for our buck in terms of output because we're having such such little amounts of them so I really think you know when I'm counseling people legumes is one category that most people aren't hitting on their super six most days so I see like that's a, the the biggest win um, in terms of when people are looking, at, you know, ingredients and foods to include in their diet, you know, thinking about thinking about that.
0: And on that note, is is there any advice you give to your clients about when they make these changes, that how they make them, how quickly, uh, to sort of give them a, a management tool for the fact they may experience some side effects? So.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, I'm all for talking about passing wind, flatulence, yeah. <laughs> all that sort of stuff, and it is really important to discuss because. The last thing we want to do is put people off, um, mm-hmm. you know, eating more plants. We do absolutely need to explain to them, you know, why they may experience them. And I think the first thing is just to, to explain that it's not doing any damage to their body. So um, we don't want people to feel uncomfortable, but I feel like there is a lot of people that go, oh, my God, because they never really had much fiber. For. So therefore, they never really produce much gas because obviously we know that the bacteria break down that fiber. They produce amazing chemicals like these short chain fatty acids, like putyrate, um, which we know you know can support our gut lining, is anti-inflammatory, you know, can we communicate with our brain, etc. But also as a side product, they also produce a bit of gas, natural, you know, waste product that is produced. But if you're not used to it, you can get a little bit and anxious of, oh my God, if. I've got some gas in me. Um, so I think the first thing to, for us to, like, educate people on is the fact that, you know, a little bit of gas is a sign of a well-fed community of gut bacteria. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, of course, if you're having bloating and cramping because you've got so much gas, then that's going to be really bad and we don't want that. And therefore, we need to go slow and steady um, with the amount of increase in the fiber that you're having in your diets. Um so, you know, over, I would say, a six-month period, if you go from 15 grams of fiber to 30 grams of fiber, that's how slow you would probably need to go to get no symptoms at all. But actually, a lot of people go, you know what, if I, if I understand that being a bit gassy is not a bad thing, I'm not doing damage to my body. I'm fine with it. I want to just speed up the process of gut adaptation. And when our clinical trials at Kings, we do usually start patients off um, at a half dose, if we're doing a fiber supplement study. Um, And then over the space of about two weeks, we bump that up um, Mm. to double the dose. And that seems to be fairly well tolerated. So most people's guts can absolutely adapt quite quickly. Um, Now, of course, there's, there's, levels because we know some people have these functional gut disorders like an um IBS and, and functional bloating and stuff like that. And those populations, I would say, yeah, it will take you a little bit longer, but stick with it. And the analogy that I think can be really helpful in terms of getting um patients and clients to understand, it's kind of like going to the gym. So if you haven't gone to the gym for a while, i.e. if you haven't historically eaten much fiber and you go really gung-ho, you go really heavy session at the gym or you go eat a big bowl of beans, yeah, the next day you're gonna feel a bit your muscles are gonna feel a bit sore, right? From the gym. Um and I think usually, well I historically have celebrated that. I was- but I think it's that that mindset of that acceptance. And if you go to the gym and actually you don't want to feel really sore, you know, you just gradually increase your program. And the exact same goes with diet. You know, instead of having a whole cup of beans if you're not used to it, literally every day um, have just one table, two tablespoons of beans, and over three weeks building it up adding an extra tablespoon a day seems to be well tolerated in most people I see, and they don't get that extra bloating or gas.
0: Mm, and I think that's a great analogy, isn't it? When you go to the gym, you make your muscles. Because you work them. And like you say, you're working the gut. And it's about normalizing a bit of gas in the bowel, is 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 fine, it's what it should be doing, uh, but equally managing symptoms when they become a problem for these patients. And, and that brings me on really to a lot of the work I do is in functional gut disorders, and uh and you know, I do keep up to date with all that you're doing in this field. So Um, there is a large proportion of the population that we know will experience functional gut disorders at some point in their life for a whole host of reasons. And I'd be interested, on the basis that we know you know, the the sort of emergence of new products from manufacturers comes from the work that dietitians do with our clients and what we hear from them that then gives the ideas to the manufacturers about what um, products they should be producing. So do you see a role of food manufacturers uh, in um, using ingredients and, and their labelling and point of sale information to help individuals manage things like functional gut disorders?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it is is really important um, that the options are open to people with functional gut disorders like you, you said yourself and you see a lot of patients and I'm sure you see that a lot of food fears come from it. A lot of people are scared of eating out. Um, you know they've got a very narrow range of food whereas if manufacturers you know be more savvy with labeling come out with maybe lower fermentable higher fiber products um kind of these format friendly products that are, that are starting to come out then i think absolutely it can really help um a lot of these people who are struggling feel confident and broaden up their diet um so i think there is a lot of opportunity there to have products that are more set up for people with sensitive guts so to speak um, um, but I also think that it is important that people with functional gut symptoms, you know, do, do appreciate that in many cases, you know, they can teach their gut to tolerate more and more over time. Yes, it is a process, um, but we do know that things like, you know, de-stressing exercises and, and gut-drug treatment therapy, there's actually clinical trials to support that doing that sort of stuff can actually then help them tolerate all sorts of of foods out there and you know mechanistically i think it's helpful for people to understand that you know no matter how how low in terms of fiber they go if they have a very sensitive gut lining even the mere act of eating can stimulate their enteric nervous system which is kind of feeding into the gut and those sensitive nerves and they're going to trigger symptoms so that's why a lot of people go, you know, they they're fixate on diet too much, right? They, they think it's always I've got intolerances and they get more restrictive. But sometimes it's the fact that their gut-brain axis is so hypersensitive, that enteric nervous system is like strangling their gut. Mm. Um, and therefore, even if a little bit of gas gets produced, it gets trapped in the gut. Whereas if you've got a relaxed gut, i.e. if you do things like the gut-directed hypnotherapy or breathing exercises before you eat, et cetera, then actually that really relaxes that enteric nervous system. And any gas that may be produced because of small amounts of fiber, people are building up in their gut um, in terms of that fermentation process actually can get from their gut into their blood system and they can breathe out easier. It's less likely to get Mm. trapped. So I think, again, highlighting not just the fixation on food in these functional gut patients. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was a bit of a tangible, but I think mm. in terms of food industry, I think that absolutely can have a role, but also highlighting to patients that it's not just about diet. You know, you can broaden up that plant diversity um, by doing non-dietary approaches as well.
0: Mm it's that whole lifestyle approach and I think in your own books it features very much in there around the yoga and the breathing and meditation and lifestyle and yeah that whole gut-brain axis is is explored as well and and certainly in the field of medical nutrition that I get involved in quite a lot you know, patients do say to me, when I got that product, why wasn't there some information with that product about how it would be beneficial for the mink? That is where there's point of sale opportunities and there to try and do that education uh, and and inform clients around the benefits of of specific ingredients or how it might be helpful for them without it being misleading.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And overwhelming as well, but simple messaging absolutely can be really powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah. So based on your clinical experience, experience and all the research that you're still engaged in now and your knowledge in developing food brands and know you've got your own food brand too. Um, what progress do you envisage in this field and and here I wonder if you could also explore things like snacks you know can healthy snacks be included as, as part of a, a, a wholesome healthy diet can less healthy snacks be part of that um, and how might that influence uh, the sort of food brands and manufacturers?
1: Yeah, like I really love seeing um, that more and more companies and the big retailers even are starting to have this approach of diversity in their own products. So um, even some of those, those pasta salad dishes they're actually now starting to add a little bit more of diversity in them. So I feel like that content is starting to penetrate food industry, which I think is incredibly exciting. And I see that is only going to get more um, kind of common practice as the research comes out and really reinforces more about this diversity. I think personalised nutrition, we kind of briefly touched on that, those with more sensitive guts or those who want high fiber. I think personalised nutrition will probably come out more as a, as a key trend um, in, in food industry. And then And, yeah, in terms of the whole world of snacking, I think there is so much exciting opportunity to enhance the health benefits of of some snacks which historically may have been deemed as as really unhealthy and bad for you. But then, as you touched on, I think the science around the microbiome is highlighting that it's more important about what we include rather than exclude. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, having some of these, um, you know, kind of historically thought of as bad foods chocolate for example i eat chocolate every day and you know what often i eat white chocolate which has got mm. no antioxidants in it <laughs> is full of added sugar um but you know it's about it's that's not you know because sugar is absorbed so high up our intestine despite what you'll read on dr google it's not mm. actually you know harming the gut bacteria remember most of that lives in the final 1.5 meters so mechanistically having some added sugar is not going to be you know, bad for you um, in terms of your gut. The only badness is if we overdo and therefore we're too full and then don't eat the fibre. So I'm a big believer of this message of, yeah, have your chocolate, but, hey, let's not forget to add in some plants to that in any way that you can. Um, So this inclusion, not exclusion. And it's not just a more positive message, but actually it seems to work because we know as dieticians the more we say we can't have something in restriction, the, the less likely uh, they're able to comply to it long term. They then start to binge eat, have negative relationships with food and actually show that they tend to have higher risk of chronic conditions as well as, you know, high body, body weights in, in about 10 years or so of that sort of vicious cycle. So, um, yeah, I think we need to kind of change that, that kind of view around snacking or bad foods or good foods.
0: Mm. And are there many more innovations you anticipate in this field without giving any trade secrets? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, I did touch a little bit on that personalised space. I think Mm. we're starting to appreciate that everyone has slightly different guts and therefore the foods that are more optimal for some people. Um, but I think that personalised, you know, space is very much in the research stage. And I would just caution, particularly dietitians, um, that if they are getting patients who've kind of had these personalised tests that have come through mm. um, of the microbiome uh, and response to blood sugars and stuff like that, just be very cautious. I know there, you know, even some universities signed to back some private companies, but in my mind the research is not convincing enough that we would go down this whole you know this type of pasta is healthier for you personally compared to this type Mm. of pasta yet um it's a cool concept but what we see um in terms of the actual health gains is quite limited Mm. um so i would
0: just caution those sorts of personalized tests at the moment yeah so stick to our evidence base while still exploring new options going forward because that's what leads to the innovations and changes in practice that reap those rewards and benefits in the future, don't they? So great, great message there to probably finish on, actually, because I appreciate your very, very busy and um, I've really appreciated time with you today I think it's been really insightful I know how much our audience probably were keen to hear you on one of the podcasts within the dietetic discussion because so many of them admire what you do and certainly for me it's been great some seeing somebody like yourself who's a scientist a researcher a dietitian passionate about food as well as fitness and lifestyle Uh, you're a great role model and but you know when you search Dr. Google now and the gut health doctor comes right up there at the top of the searches so you're doing wonders for the profession and uh you know making a real difference to many people's lives so I really appreciate the time that we've had together Megan and I'm sure that all our listeners will do too so thank you so much
1: no it's been an absolute pleasure and um I think the key message yeah I like to get yeah. out to dietitians is that we have so much potential when it comes to gut health and we can really lead this space in a very evidence-based way despite a lot of the fatty stuff that's going to come into play so I'm very passionate about you know as a profession we tr- we try to take control and and highlight the exciting elements of gut health within the kind of evidence-based parameters
0: yes that's a lovely key message to finish on so thanks once again Megan I've really enjoyed having Megan with me today. There's a lot we've packed in from the science supporting eating 30 plants a week and the influence of eating patterns, fiber and food ingredients on gut function. I hope we've also smashed some of the myths that we know exist in the public domain around gut health and diet. Megan is undoubtedly an inspiration to many, and today has further demonstrated the importance of utilising our dietetic skills and the sound knowledge available to provide credible evidence-based messages to empower individuals to make choices that can improve gut health and bowel function. Through the research that Megan and her team are undertaking, I'm sure there'll be much more new knowledge to come to underpin the practice and science of dietetics so we can optimize the health of the nation through dietary adjustments and positive changes in lifestyle. Before we leave you, I'd like to thank Nutrinovo, a company who have consistently demonstrated an innovative approach to clinical nutrition, for supporting this podcast into its third series. I'd like to once again express my huge appreciation to Dr. Megan Rossi for joining me, and I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for taking the time to tune in to the Dietetic Discussion. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to the Dietetic Discussion, leave a five-star review and promote it to your colleagues or department. We're already working on the next exciting episode. So to find out more about the next episode and the podcast series, do follow at NutriNovo across both Twitter and Instagram, or alternatively check out the podcast section in NutriNovo's resource centre at NutriNovo.com.